Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my Dating Violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. So today we're speaking with Jill, and she's going to tell us about a relationship that she was in that lasted almost a decade, starting when she was 16 years old, but I'd rather have her tell it than for me to tell it. Jill, thank you so much for coming on the When Dating Hurts podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a while. We've been in communication for a bit, and here you are. So good morning. Good morning, and thanks for having me on. Well, I thought maybe it might help a little bit to kind of get a sense of you before this came along, kind of a snapshot of family life leading up to meeting this guy that you dated. Sure. So I was kind of a, I was always a good kid, but then when I hit my preteens, I became kind of a wild person. I lived in a family with a lot of anger and a lot of fighting and that kind of thing. And I think once I got old enough that I could decide that I didn't want to be around there anymore, I kind of started partying, staying out, you know, that kind of thing. It was mostly my father, mostly my father and my mother, but I had older siblings that um, my dad was just a very angry person. So you didn't really have to do much to get him going. I had a brother that was in sports and my father used to tear into him after every game and, you know, criticize him and that kind of stuff. So it was just a very tense household. Like my father ruled the roost and um, yeah, he was just a, a very angry I don't want to say too many mean things about him because obviously there's a reason why he was that way, but he, it was a very tense situation. You had to really watch what you said and did in the house. And if not, it wasn't just, can you please stop that? It was, you know, they scream and yell. So yeah, it was nice to get away from that once I was old enough to kind of be out and not have to be, you know, when you're young, you always have to go somewhere with your parents. And when, as soon as I was at that age where I didn't have, have to be with them, I was like, wow, let's do this every day. So basically I don't ever want to be my mother. I don't want to be with anybody like my father. I loved my father, but I don't want to be with anybody who treats me like that. And I mean, it was a very, it was strange because I was born in like 60s, 70s era. So it was kind of crossing over between women didn't have any say and women are speaking out, right? So it was very kind of on the cusp of that, but my father wouldn't give up any 
like there was no way you were having your own say in anything because he was still he who he was my sister ended up with an abuser another sister ended up with not an abuser uh, physically but just like a, a mind game person and my brother is just a horrible human being so my brother was like my dad only leveled up 10 levels so yes it imprinted on all of us but I would say I'm the only one that kind of went the other way you know like everybody else like the the two women ended up being beaten down and the boy ended up being just like my dad only worse and I was kind of because it's gradual I mean if I walked into a relationship and he yelled at me I would have walked right back out again but it's not like that it's gradual it's you know I was dating but not as serious Marcus and I were it was you know, I had somebody else that I really truly cared about, but it never really got that serious because I was young. So Marcus and I started dating when I was, I think, 15 or 16. So that was kind of when, you know, uh, the more important relationships would start, I guess you could say. But I, you know, I dated other other boys. We went, it was the 70s and 80s. So it was people roller skating or to the movies or that kind of thing. But there was never, you know, physical or anything like that in, in terms of sexual or, you know, this person was kind of like, the next level of dating for me. I met him through friends. He was, there was kind of a big group of friends and um, a friend that I had just met was a good friend of his. He was a few years older than me. So we didn't travel in the same circles because I was, like I said, I was still a teenager and he was already in his twenties, but I knew this person who was kind of in between both our ages, knew him. So I kept bugging him and bugging him to introduce me. And he finally did and took off from there. So honestly, he was older. I found him very attractive, like physically attractive. He was, you know, one of the cool guys. So that was important to me because that was important to me. I don't know why. I also liked the fact that he smoked pot and dealt pot. So it would be free for me. And he liked to party. He liked to party and drink and have a good time and everything I was looking for. And he was nice. He was a nice guy. Like he was quite... Like anybody who meets him says, oh, he's such a nice guy. Like he really is personable unless you're dating him and then not so much. He's manipulative and people don't see that. They see nice guy. Yeah, he had been, sorry, he, uh, just a kind of a, he had been with somebody for, I don't think it was for too long. I think maybe a year, which at that age, I guess was kind of long. But anyway, she had cheated on him with one of his friends. So he was very hurt. And not that I was a rebound because I don't even know how long before we started dating that was but that was kind of his first serious girlfriend and that's what happened so I think I got a lot of the anger that was intended for her and he grew up in a household very similar to the one that I grew up in not as many siblings but um, his father was quite volatile and his mother was quite I don't want to say meek but it was you know it wasn't the happiest place on earth because of the age difference we couldn't go like we didn't I guess if we went to movies and stuff like that, we went out for dinner and, but not like more like takeout, that kind of thing. We didn't go out to fancy restaurants. We were young. He didn't have a job other than dealing pot. So not the most lucrative thing. Well, not when you're a pothead, it's not very lucrative. We mostly went to parties and hung out with friends. Cause like I said, we had the friend group was quite extensive from one age to another. Like there was a lot of people that hung together between 16 and 22 kind of thing. So it was mostly house parties and that kind of thing, because I couldn't go to bars because I was too young. Well, I could go to them, but he, he tended to go to strip joints and I didn't really want to go there because I was 16. So that's mainly where I would find him. 
so that's I guess that's mostly what we did we we hung out a lot he had the type of house where his parents didn't say anything to anybody everybody would come over and cloud of smoke coming out of the basement would be ridiculous and they'd be like oh I guess they're having fun with their friends not admitting what was going on so it was a real um he was like the party central house and his parents were very nice they were very friendly they were always nice to us and everything not judgmental and stuff so as much as you were going to visit the kids you were also hanging out with the parents like sometimes you'd walk in and half the people that were there were up in the kitchen talking to the parents and the other half were downstairs smoking dope so it was just that type of welcoming type of household so there was always always a lot of people around so our relationship really was physical we didn't have a lot of conversation when there was nobody around we we spent a lot of time doing physical activities <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of um, outside dating there was like other than parties and stuff if we were alone that's pretty much what we were doing so at first he was very nice didn't raise his voice so actually it's kind of funny because I had broken up with him probably I don't even remember it's been a long time so I'd say like a few weeks in I was at his place and somebody called and I could tell by his voice that he was talking to a female because of just the way his voice kind of softened. Then I could hear him and he's like, well, I can meet you later or I'm with some friends now and whatever he was saying. And I'm sitting there looking at him thinking, who are you talking to? So he got off the phone and I said, who are you talking to? And he goes, oh, just this girl. And I'm like, yeah, well, you're dating me. So who is just this girl? And he's like, oh, she's just a friend. And I'm like, oh, okay. So anyways, he told me her name. So fine. So then I asked one of his friends a couple of days later, I said, so who's this girl? Oh, just a dancer. Keep in mind, again, I'm 16. I'm not, you know, that's pretty young. Like that was disgusting to me that you were going to bring something like that to me as a young person. So I just said, like, if you talk to her again, then just keep talking to her because I'm not putting up with this. Like you pick one or the other, like I'm not into that. Right. So he's like, oh, no, she's just a friend, just a friend. But I found out that I don't know if he was sleeping with her at the time, but he had slept with her many times. That's why they were on the phone together. Like you don't normally talk to strippers because they don't really care that much about you other than your cash unless you're sleeping together. So she called again a couple of days later and I just got up and I walked out of the house. And so then he got in his car and he followed me home. And so he's chasing me down the street and he's like, like, don't, don't be mad. She's just a friend. And I was like, get out. Like, I'm not. I'm not, I might be younger than you, but I'm not an idiot. So get away from me. Like, I, I don't want this relationship with you. So a couple of weeks go by, don't hear from him. So I thought, okay, good. So that's it. I'm not going to bother with him anymore. And then he called me one night and he said, I miss you. And I said, well, so what are you going to do about that? And he's like, you know, I, I told her I can't talk to her anymore or whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're serious about it, we'll give it another shot, but you can't be doing that. You know, you might want to do that with other people, but don't do that with me because I'm not interested in that type of a relationship. Either we're exclusive or we're not. That's all. He's like, no, no, I love you. I'm like, oh boy, three weeks. You love me. Okay. So we started dating again. Everything was fine. And then I can't remember, we were out partying and I can't remember, but he had said or done something that I didn't like. So when we were in the vehicle on the way home, we were in somebody's backseat and he's I, he said something and I just, I told him to fuck off. I said, just fuck off and drive me home. And that's, he punched me in the head and my head hit the back window. And I was like, I just looked at him and I thought, oh my God, what's going on here? And so then the people in the front seat pretended they didn't hear or see anything or whatever. And there was somebody else in the back seat with us. And she just pretended she was like, well, not here. She was on the other side of Marcus. Anyways, I just, I didn't say anything all the way home. I was just stunned. Like nobody had ever done that to me before, you know, but I didn't want to, I'm in a group full of his friends. So what are you supposed to do? And I also, I always had this 
don't look like the little kid in the group because that's a lot of his friends used to call me that the baby and the child and that kind of thing so I thought okay don't overreact to it because you're going to look like an idiot in front of all these people and if you don't end up leaving the relationship then you have to see them again and all that stuff so I just shut my mouth and got home and ignored his calls for the next few days I don't even know how we started talking again but we did and he apologized of course won't happen again blah blah so it was okay for a while I really don't remember timelines because it was a long time ago a long long time ago. the main thing was that my father was sick he had found out that he had cancer and I was a teenager so I was a selfish teenager I didn't want to be there because I didn't want to have to deal with that and actually at first they didn't tell me they just said your father's sick they never told me that he had cancer until like I don't even know if he was still alive when I heard that he had cancer anyways they were trying to protect me right my house was a drag because everybody was sad because my dad was sick and so I decided that I was going to ask my sister if I could go and live with her because she was considerably older. And I said, like, I just, I don't want to be here. And I think she took pity on me because she knew how hard it must be because my mother was an alcoholic as well. So there was a whole lot of things going on. And she thought, you know what, no, just come and stay with me. But she had a little bit too much trust in me, unfortunately. So I was, I got even not more wild, but just more irresponsible after I moved into her place and I started not coming home. But she said, you know what, as long as I know where you are, then I don't care as long as I don't have to worry. And I said, well, I'm going to be at Marcus's house. That's all I ever do is go to Marcus's and I go out with Marcus. So, you know, my friends, we all hang around together. So my friends, Marcus's friends, we all hang around in one big group. And that's usually where we are is at his place. So you don't ever have to worry about me like being out running the streets and stuff like that. Like I'm not running away from home. I'm just, I just want to do what I want to do. So she let me do that. And um, so I spent most of my time there and got pregnant. So I found out I was pregnant and a couple of days later, uh, my father passed away. Very difficult. I can definitely say that was probably the worst time in my life. Well, the first worst time in my life. And I was young, you know, I was 16 years old. I didn't tell anybody. I told one person in my family and I told him, I told my friends, a couple of friends, and then I told him and he said, oh, it's, it's, it's not mine or it's probably not mine or, you know, something. So he, he wouldn't really talk to me about it. Like he just, okay, thanks for telling me, but it's not mine. So I don't want to hear any more about it. I knew that, I knew that if I kept the baby, like I just, I didn't want to have an abortion, put it that way. It was kind of late because I spent so much time partying. I didn't really pay much attention to what was going on with my body. So it was too late to have an abortion. Not that I would have anyways, but I, I knew if I kept the baby, I'd be stuck with him forever. Like I'd be tied to him for the rest of my life. And she or he would have to grow up with this. And this is what I grew up with. And I thought, uh, I, that, no. So I ended up giving, giving the baby up for adoption. He was mad at me forever, still is mad at me about that. But because I was pregnant and giving the baby up for adoption, he wouldn't be seen in public with me because he would say, well, how do you expect, how do you expect us to be out and people see you pregnant? And then they're going to see you not pregnant anymore. And we don't have a baby with us. And I'm like, well, well, be a grown up and tell them what you've done. But no, no, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't be seen in public. So for, I don't know, probably seven months, six, seven months, whatever, however long it takes until I didn't look pregnant. And I didn't look like I just had a baby. It was at his house, physical at his house. That's it. So that was, I mean, that was emotionally abusive, I guess you could say. He wasn't uh, like, he never beat me up while I was pregnant. Like it was not, 
our relationship was very superficial at that point. Like it got deeper as like after I had the baby, it became more, as we grew older, it became more intense. Like our relationship itself became more intense. It wasn't just physical. Well, it was still very physical, but it wasn't, you know, like we actually had conversations and went places and did things and that kind of thing. But for the first year or so, there wasn't, because I got pregnant so quickly, there was not a lot of, there wasn't a lot of uh, interaction between us outside of continuing what got me pregnant in the first place. Yes. So after that, we were these chronic breakup people. We broke up like every couple of weeks or every month or something we'd fight. But there was very, um, you know, we would fight mostly about him going to the bars, mostly because I tried to phone him. He wouldn't be there. He'd supposed to be coming to get me. He wouldn't come and get me. Just stuff like just disrespectful stuff was the first year of fighting, I guess you could say. After the punch in the head, which I don't even remember when that was. It was in the first six months. I just don't remember. It was pretty early on. So that was that. So then after I had the baby, because I had quit school, failed a few grades. So, but I went back to school. I did well. I decided that I had to get my life back together. And he seemed on board with that. I thought things were going to be good from then on. That's not what happened. I never actually lived with him. He always lived at home. His mother treated him like he was six all his life. It was never his fault. It was always somebody else's fault, my fault, his friend's fault. He would never do that. Marcus is a good kid, blah, blah, whatever. As we got older, uh, any job I have, he would always come and start fights with me. I found out later on that he was a complete addict. He got into doing cocaine together and then I didn't like it. So I stopped and he said he stopped, but he didn't. But then he started doing crack, but then I wouldn't see him. So I didn't know, like I knew that there was something driving this fury in him, but I didn't know what it was because he kept me separate from that life. I didn't know the people he hung around with. You know, he would leave me at home, but he would phone me. What are you doing? Are you going out? Well, don't go out. I'll be over. I'll be over. You know, so I was kind of relegated to my house all the time because he was coming over. I'll just wait for him, you know, that kind of thing. So it was that kind of, I guess, intimidation, because if I had went out, I would have never heard the end of it. He would yell and scream and then he'd hit me. And he's one of those people that would come right into your face and like be like spitting mad at you. And he was a big guy. I knew he was on something and I knew that he could kill me in an instant. Things graduated. The worse he got with the drugs, things graduated. Our main thing was that we fought a lot. And every time we fought, it was regardless of whether it was his fault or my fault, it was my fault. And it was always intimidation. Like he would intimidate me. He would, he would come, come to my window. Uh, I lived with my mother for the first few years and he would come to my window and throw rocks at my window in the middle of the night because the bar closed. Right. So he had nowhere to go. So he would come to my house. He knew that it was just my mother and I, and he knew that she'd either be drunk and passed out or she would be too afraid to deal with the situation. So he knew that I would have to do what I could to shut him up. So, you know, I'd be outside in the backyard, like scream whispering, like that kind of thing. And in the middle of the night, and it was just awful. I'd call the police and he'd hear the car because where I lived, it wasn't, it was a very quiet neighborhood and somebody was coming in to the Crescent. You could hear them coming down the street. So it's two in the morning. You just yelled and screamed at me. You're probably pretty sure I called the police and within 10 minutes you hear a car, you know who it is. So he'd jump the fence and he'd go sit in the neighbor's yard and then the cops would come. They'd look around for him and I'd say, well, he's in the neighbor. Well, we can't go in the neighbor's yard. I'm like, but that's where he is. Well, uh, we can't go in there. Okay. So then he, they'd leave and he'd jump back over the fence and continue. And that happened. Like, I can't even tell you how many times that happened. He had friends that he had all his life, but they weren't good for him because they were, he was the drug dealer, right? So he went from 
dealing weed to dealing whatever else everybody was doing at the time, because that's the only way he felt that he could have friends. So I was trying to explain to him, like, these aren't your friends. These are people that are using you because you have the drugs. But no, that was, I was wrong. And, you know, he would say, oh, so-and-so saw you doing this or so-and-so saw you out. And it's like, well, I wasn't out. I was sitting at home waiting for you. No, they saw you here. They saw you. So I was never right, but I knew I was right. So I didn't buy into that kind of stuff, but I just kind of, I just became complacent because I thought I'm not winning this anyway. So just shut up. Right. I'm a stick up for the underdog person. So when I became the underdog, it really bothered me because it's like, this isn't who I am, but I have to be this person because a lot of time the fights would escalate to the point of violence. If I would say anything for me, sometimes it's not a decision. It just opens up and comes out. Right. It just happens. So you know, if I was really, if I was thinking about it, I would be a little bit more in tune to what I was saying and think to myself, okay, don't say that. But sometimes things would just fly out of my mouth and there was a slap across the face or there was a punch or, you know, that kind of thing. But usually I'd run at him and scream. So then it would escalate. Um, like I'd run at him to hit him back, but he was much stronger than me. So I, ne I never got too many shots in because he was much stronger. But then after a while, I just kind of cowered because the violence got worse. Like at first he would just hold me and then he would hold me and shake me. And then he would pin me down. You know, like the first couple of times I did it, I think it shocked him that I came back at him. So he just kind of held me. But then the next couple of times he wouldn't just hold me. He'd hold me. He'd squeeze my face. He'd squeeze my neck. He'd do like escalating things like that. He would do it. It was more to put pressure, like just to hurt me, but not to actually choke me out or he never, he didn't do that. I lived in an apartment on the eighth floor and I didn't have a balcony and we were, we were having a really bad, he pushed me out the window. Like he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And like I said, he, he probably had a good 120 pounds on me. He was a big guy and he was strong and he was loony and he was on something. So not good factors. So he pushed me out the window, but he grabbed my ankles and he held me outside the window for, I don't even know how long, well, it seemed like forever, but it was probably just a few seconds. And then he pulled me back in. But when he pulled me back in, he scraped my whole back on the windowsill because it had, it was an old building. So it had one of those, you just kind of push the button down and it leaned against the window. That was the lock. You're on the eighth floor in the middle of nowhere. It's nobody's coming in anyways. Right. So I got dragged over that. So that hurt my, my back or whatever. And of course now everybody that was looking was going counting how many floors up, how many floors over calling the police. So now the police came but I had to sit and just be quiet and not say anything so that the police would leave. They came and banged on the door and banged on the door because, you know, it was obvious that what had happened, all kinds of people had called. It was a very busy intersection where I lived and nobody called. I'm trying to think like nobody called me. Nothing ever happened. Like the police never <clears throat> came back to follow up or it's like, Oh, well, I guess you're not home. <laughs> well, he didn't drop her out the window. So I guess everything's fine. I guess I can leave. So I, I'm guessing that they probably thought that I fled the apartment or we fled the apartment or whatever, because I had to sit still. Like I got the shut your fucking mouth or I'll kill you. And I was like, okay, I will do that. Got the message loud and clear. Yeah, that was one of the worst things that ever happened. I mean, he hit me many, many times, but when he would hit me, we, we knew another couple that was in, in a very, a very abusive relationship. They were huge drinkers. They were always drunk and they were always going at each other. He had damaged her internally. I can't remember what he did, but something happened and she ended up with internal bleeding in the hospital. And I said something about him, Marcus saying to me, 
shut up or I'll hit you or something. And I said, oh yeah, because you like to beat me. And he goes, he goes, oh, if I beat you, you'd be in the hospital like so-and-so. So in other words, like he wasn't abusing me. He wasn't beating me. He, the other girl, she was getting beaten because she was in the hospital with internal bleeding, but I wasn't being beaten. I wasn't being abused. Nope, nothing, just, yeah. Another awful thing. And um, so my mother passed away shortly after my father passed away. This was actually not too long before we broke up. So my mother passed away and he came to my house. I lived in my own apartment. Like I said, I never lived with him. Um, I lived in my own apartment and he called me and he was screaming at me. And I said, listen, I can't fight with you. My mother passed away. Funerals tomorrow. I don't want to see you. Just leave me alone. Let me get through this. Whenever I'm coming to the fucking funeral, he says. And I'm like, no, you aren't because my mother hated your guts and I don't want you there. God only knows what you're going to do and you're not coming. I'm fucking coming and blah, blah, whatever. So he ended up coming to my apartment that night and kicking the door in because I wouldn't open it. And he beat me up. I had, he was very good at not leaving bruises like so many of them are. I didn't often have bruises on my face or my arms or anything like that. But this night when I left, he knew the next day I was wearing a short sleeve dress because it was, it was summertime and he knew, and I had bruises all over my legs. I had bruises all down one arm from him slamming me against the wall and grabbing me and whatever. I didn't really notice as I left, but I just grabbed my keys and I ran out the door and I ran, I I think I pushed him or he went to the bath. I can't remember what happened, but I got away from him. I ran up the stairs, got my car, took off. He was chasing my car down the road. So I went to a friend's place and I'm like, I need to stay here because like, I don't, I don't know where else to go. So I didn't want to go to any of my family because I didn't, you know, didn't want to upset them the night before. And so anyways, I stayed at her place and he kept calling her and calling her because he knew that that's where I would have went because I didn't really have any other options. So she just kept saying, like, leave her alone. She was trying to calm him down. She's like, leave her alone. And, you know, just let her calm down. Just let her get through this with her mother and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm going, I'm going. I've been with her all these years. I should be going. She's like, Marcus, the mother didn't like you. You're just causing problems. Just, you know, leave it alone. I got drunk that night so I could go to sleep. And the next day I got up and I phoned his dad. And I said, his dad was my only ally in that family all those years. So I called him and I said, listen, I really hate to bother you, but Marcus is being awful. And he goes, well, what's going on? So I told him and he was like a rough around the edges guy, you know, and he's like, well, what the fuck is he doing that for? And I go, I don't know. He's mad because I told him he couldn't come. And he goes, well, why would he want to go to that anyways? And I'm like, I don't know. He goes, well, he knows your mother hates him. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But I think that's just the whole in control thing. Like, you don't like me, but I'm at your funeral and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, he says, oh, don't worry about it. I'll talk to him. I'm like, okay. I said, is he there? And he goes, yeah. I said, okay. So I didn't worry about it. But then somebody called me. Somebody got to the funeral home before I did. So somebody called me and they said, Jill, Marcus is here at the funeral home. And I said, what do you mean? He's there. He's here. He's here. And he's tearing around the funeral home on his bike. He had a motorcycle. I said, what do you mean tearing around the funeral home? And she said, he was driving, like, just like circling the funeral home like going super fast and acting like an idiot, whatever. So I guess he was mad that I called his dad. And so that's how he punished me was by doing that. And so then somebody told him to leave. Somebody from the funeral home came out and said, that's not appropriate behavior for a funeral home. You have to leave. So he went home, but then he kept calling the funeral home asking for me. So when I walked in the door, my, I think it was my sister or my sister-in-law, somebody came up to me and they said, 
Marcus keeps calling the funeral home looking for you. So they keep going around looking for you. And so if they come up to you and ask, you know, if you are Jill, just say, no, you're not, because they're going to try to give you the phone. I'm like, okay. So anyways, I called, tried to call his house. But of course, this was back in the early days when people didn't have cell phones. So he answered the home phone because he was right there calling the funeral home every five minutes. So I guess his father sensed that something was going on and he knew where the funeral home was going to be. He looked in the paper and he saw where it was going to be. So he came and he had a very distinct pickup truck. So he came and he sat his pickup truck, right? Like in front of the funeral home, but far away. Like it was obvious that he wasn't a guest, but he was like my bouncer. <laughs> so he stayed so that Marcus couldn't did well, not couldn't, but didn't, he didn't come. I saw him pass by on his, on his motorcycle a couple of times because I was outside having a cigarette. And so I saw him driving up and down the road, but he's not going to go because his dad's there. So then I had enough on my mind. So now I'm standing at the graveside, looking around, making sure that nobody's going to come up behind me and try to kill me from the bushes, you know? So that was another awful thing. It wasn't, I mean, it was bad that he beat me up the night before, but I think the emotional toll that took the next day, that was when I really started to kind of realize, like, if you don't do something soon, <laughs> like, you're never going to get out of this, you know, like this is escalation big time. Like who does that? And the other thing too, is that he never actually worked. Like he would, he would work, but then he had a job where he would get laid off or they couldn't work in the weather conditions and different things. So he actually didn't work. So he had a lot of time for terroristic behavior. He terrorized me at every job I ever had. When I worked retail, he would come into the store and then he would just like, like stare at me in an angry way. So now I'm nervous that it was more of um, an intimidation. That's what I mean by the intimidation. Um, but then I would say to him, like, stop coming to my work. My boss is getting mad because, you know, you're, you're bothering me. You shouldn't be in there. Like, this isn't somewhere you should be. And you're very out of place there with the way you look. It's obvious that you're there for an ulterior reason other than to shop, you know. It was just, it was all like just like nine years of mind games, pretty much. He would make up these stories in his head, I think. I, I say he would terrorize me. What terrorized me was you never knew what he was going to do. Is he going to drive by and stop and come in and yell and scream and hit? Or like he would never do that in front of anybody. But if I was alone in the store or whatever, he would. He would come in and he would, you know, I'd, I'd have to go and serve clients bawling my eyes out because they were like, oh, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, just act like something bad happened in my life or whatever, which, you know, something did. But a lot of it was because you never knew what he was going to do. So he would be driving past my work or coming into my work. Okay, so now when I leave my work, where is he? Is he hiding behind the building? Is he behind my car? Is he in my car, under my car? Like, Where is he? Like, he's done so many things that you just don't know, right? So is this just like an intimidation? I know where you are. Or like he used to accuse me of talking to coworkers. I'm like, yep, they're coworkers. That's what you do with coworkers. You speak to them. So... I don't know what you want me to do. Like you're sitting in the strip doing, talking to strippers and you don't work there. So but that's fine. You know? So one day, this was another awful thing. And this happened probably, we were probably together maybe three years. So I worked not far from home. I lived with my mom and I worked, I think it was five or six blocks. So he was terrorizing me at work. He was coming in screaming at me and whatever. And one of the uh, neighboring retailers called the police because they knew what was going on. They'd known me for a while. And so they called the police and, and the police came and told them to leave. So he left. And I said, well, are you going to sit in the parking lot and wait till he comes back? And they're like, no, he's gone. I'm like, okay, he's gone. 
So by this time, I had a restraining order on him for something that had happened in the apartment where he hung me out the window. That was the first apartment that I ever had. Back then, I can't remember, I think I didn't put the restraining order on him. I think the police automatically did because I wouldn't. And I think that's when that law kind of came in around that time. So there was definitely a restraining order. So I was walking home and he was on his motorcycle and he was trying to run me over all through the parking lot. I'm not going to say he's trying to run me over. He was trying to scare me by coming inches from me. And I knew that he probably wouldn't hit me because he really liked his bike. So I, I couldn't imagine that he would hurt his bike. If he could have had a beater of a bike and run me over, I'm sure he probably would have. But he didn't. He just wanted to scare me because he enjoyed seeing me terrified. I was walking up one side of the street because there was a, a footpath, but then the footpath stopped. So I had to cross over. There was a crosswalk there and there was a senior's home right there. And as I was walking across the street, he tried to run me over and then he turned around and tried to run me over again and tried to run me over. I know this is the middle of summer. Everybody's, all these old people are sitting out on there. It was, um, it wasn't like, um, uh, it was like a retirement residence, just a bunch of old people who lived in an apartment building, right? With exterior balconies and stuff like that. So they were all sitting out. So of course they're all calling the police, right? So I'm freaking out, bawling my eyes out. So he's up on the sidewalk, down on the road, up on the sidewalk, down on the road so that I can't get away from him. Finally, by the time we see the police come around the corner, because they came from the other direction. So by the time I finally saw the cop car coming, I thought, oh my God, thank God. So then we got to the corner of my street and the cop came over and he goes, hi. And he says, Marcus says, hi. And at first he was going to take off, but then he circled around and came back to make sure that I didn't say anything to get him in trouble. So he, he said, hi or whatever. And the cop looked at me and he says, are you okay? I'm like <laughs> hyperventilating bawling my eyes out, terrified. You just caught how many calls? Do you think I'm okay? What am I going to say? Lunatics beside me. I, what am I going to say? I said, uh, I go, yeah. And he goes, well, you don't look very fine. And so then I couldn't say anything. And he goes, what are your names? So we tell him our names. I go, he goes, he comes back and Marcus is saying, you better shut your fucking mouth. You better not say anything to get me in trouble. If I go to jail, I'm going to fucking kill you and all this. And I'm like, okay, well, just shut up. Like, don't worry about it. Just be quiet. He might be able to hear you and whatever. So anyways, he comes back over and he says, um, well, Jill, I see you have a restraining order against Marcus. And I said, yes, I do. And he goes, well, did you know they work a lot better when you're not together? So perhaps you can stop being around him and maybe you might not have any problems anymore. And he got in his car and he left. Like, there's no way you couldn't have seen it for what it was because it wasn't just coming from me. I don't even remember what really happened after that. I can't remember if he let me go home or I honestly don't remember what happened, but that was like, what's the piece of paper for? Nothing, nothing. It did nothing. There was twice that he was picked up from my, my work and taken to jail for drinking and driving because he was wasted on his bike coming to cause problems with me or whatever. And other people, other re retailers knew what was going on. So as soon as they saw him acting up, because sometimes he would come just to say hi or give me a drink or whatever. But for the most part, he was there to cause chaos. And it was mainly because we had this volatile relationship where we kept breaking up and getting back together and all that stuff. So whenever we were not getting along, that was his thing. Well, I'm going to humiliate you at work and I'm going to terrorize you at work, then you're not going to know where I am when you're leaving work. Like, is somebody going to try to run you over? Like, it was, it was all, like, mind gamey, right? So there were, there were two times that I can remember that he actually was taken away because when they caught him, the cop was coming in the parking lot of the mall, and he was going out. But they knew, I guess they'd been there enough times, but when they caught him, he didn't pass the sobriety test. 
So they took him to jail both times. But then he got out that day. By the time I got off work, he was back in the parking lot. Had my father have still been alive, like I said, he was very volatile and he was big and loony as well. I think had he have been alive, this relationship wouldn't have lasted as well. It wouldn't have lasted because I think my father would have pounded the hell out of him and told my dad knew his dad, actually. And I'm sure my dad would have said, you keep him away from her or there's going to be trouble. But because my brother was terrified of Marcus, everybody was terrified of him because he was big and scary. So I never had anybody to turn to because if you can't turn to the police, who are you supposed to turn to? Like, you know, and, and all the people that were in our, our lives, like my friends, his friends, they were all our friends. So they didn't want to get stuck in the middle. You know, it's not like I could just leave and whatever. So I ended up living with a girl, just a, a roommate girl that I had met. And we lived together for about a year and a half. But then his terrorizing in the middle of the night and stuff, like she said, I, I can't deal with your drama. Like, I just really can't. So she ended up uh, moving out and I ended up being alone with the lunatic again, because like I said, I never lived with him, but he was omnipresent. He was every, he invaded every part of my life. Later on, as, as, um, as his addiction got worse, I wouldn't see him very much. And I couldn't figure out why I thought he was seeing somebody else or whatever, but it was because he was at home higher than a kite because he was addicted to crack. So he would just sit in the basement and just smoke crack all day. And I think he actually moved out of the house at one day. Yes, he did. He did. He lived in his own apartment because he got busted one day. The police kicked his door in because he was dealing crack, I think. I don't know. At that time, for the last like year and a half, I didn't see him more than I actually did see him. But I stayed in the house because he was constantly phoning me and driving by to make sure I was there if my car was there. And if my car was parked in the garage, he'd phone, 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 phone. And it's like, what are you doing? It's like, I'm in the shower. What's the problem? Oh, I didn't see your car and you weren't answering your phone. So I thought you were out. You know, it was, it was, um, I was a prisoner in my own house simply, simply by words. So, I mean, it, it was violent. It wasn't like now that I'm talking about it, it's not as physically violent as it was emotionally. The things that were physical were very physical. He told me one time that I, the reason, one reason that he really liked me was because when I first met him, he knew how much I liked him, but I wouldn't sleep with him on the first date. I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm not one of those people. No, no. Well, it's not that I played hard to get. I just wasn't that person. Like, I didn't just meet you and sleep with you that night. As much as I liked you, no. Like, you're not going to just use me and leave. Sorry, I'm not trash. Thank you. But he had told me that that was one thing that he liked about me. After all this had, you know, all these years had come and gone and, and whatever finally. And so like my roommate had moved out and I thought, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Like, I just can't do this anymore because I have nobody to turn to. I have no police help. I have no nothing. I can't even like, I, I took an outside friend and made her my roommate and now she's gone because she can't deal with it either. Like I just, he's like tainting every moment of my life here and I just can't deal with it anymore. So I told them it's over for the next couple of months. He was constantly, constantly trying to get me back. And then I'd say, just fuck off. Like, just leave me alone. Like, I can't handle it anymore. I said, I'm moving, moving. And I'm not telling you where I'm going. Like, I just can't deal with this anymore. So just fuck off, leave me alone, get on with your life, right? I had actually went out, my sister-in-law's family was out in British, um, British Columbia or Alberta, somewhere out in Canada anyways. And so I decided, you know what, I need some time away. So it was a couple of weeks. I, I went out there to visit her family and 
he somehow got the phone number out there and he was calling long distance. Like this is a long time ago, right? He was calling long distance and like just staying on the phone, breathing into the phone. I miss you. I love you. I'm going to kill myself. But I could tell that he was wasted. I'm like, Marcus, your mother is going to, father's going to kill you because of the phone bill you're running up. Like you're not even calling the same time zone, you know, just leave me alone. Anyways, I was gone for about a week and a half, two weeks, I guess. So when I came back, he kind of left me alone a little bit, but then he started up again. So at the end, when I told him it was over, I just stopped answering the phone. I stopped being home. I would leave my car in the laneway and then I would just go for a walk or I just wanted to get away and not have to worry about it. Because up until then, I just worried all the time. I didn't realize what emotional toll it was taking on me until I started getting away from it. And I realized, oh my God, this is so nice to just be walking down the street or walking in the park and nobody's yelling at me and nobody's asking me what I'm doing or who I'm talking to or anything like that. He kind of got the hint because normally it wasn't like that. Normally I would answer the phone because I would be scared and the breakup didn't last long and all that stuff. So this was like a month, about a month and a half where in his mind, we were still together because we had never, ever broken up for any length of time. I had called a friend and arranged for a new place to live and whatever. And I was going to be living with a guy that I'd never met before as a roommate. I ended up meeting him and I slept with him that night, which is very funny because that's not something I ever did before. So now I'm like, oh my God, what did I just do? I'm supposed to be moving in with this person as a roommate. And look what I just did. Like, what are you stupid? I think because he was nice, we were drinking and my relationship with Marcus was always very physical. And I, over the last few years, it had not been very because he was always not around. So it was not something like, you know, a slobbering, gross, clammy person around you is just disgusting. So I think that was part of it. I just missed being intimate with somebody and somebody being nice to me, you know, all rolled into one. So it turned out that, um, he, that Marcus found out about that. And after he heard about that, he lost his mind and he would phone me. And I was like, no, it's over. I told you it's over. It's over. It's done. I found somebody else. It's over. And he terrorized me for a long time after that, probably about a year and a half, but he never, ever got physical. He would phone, he would do the intimidation, all that kind of stuff, but he never, ever came near me. It was always by phone or drove by my work, drove by my house because he found out where I was living because all of our friends were the same. And anyways, he never, it took a long time for him to buzz off and leave me alone. And I was always terrified, always terrified. So I got married and I had a bouncer at my door. He's a great guy. I mean, things aren't perfect. He's got a, bad, a bit of a bad temper. He was a drinker when I met him. And I just said, hey, I've been through all kinds of shit. I've been through some nasty stuff and I'm not doing it. So if you do truly care about me and you want this to last, I'm not, I'm not dealing with any kind of addiction. If you're an alcoholic, I'm not doing that anymore. It took him about two and a half years, I guess, before he finally stopped drinking and lying about it. And all that time I was like, do I really want this? You know, but he was a very nice person. He was a hard worker. He was good to me. I knew he'd be a spectacular father if we ever had kids. And so we have a daughter and she's awesome. And he was awesome with her. And we have a successful business together. And, um, and that was the other thing I said. I said, I'm not jumping into a relationship and a marriage and all this stuff, which I actually did. But I said, I want a house. I want a mortgage and I want a good job before I have a child. I don't want, I don't want to be in poverty. I don't want to ever have to worry about anything because if this doesn't work out, he needs to be, we got married. Actually, we got married June 3rd, 1995. We, we bought our house in 1999 and he was still driving by throwing rocks at the window. My husband doesn't know any of this. Uh, not that I know of anyways, but he would like, 
because he always had a motorcycle. So I'd be like, meow, meow, and I'd hear it. And he like, that was like heart stopping to me all my life still is. I still hear it. He's doing it again, actually. He just moved back to the city and I saw him drive by the other day. Oh my goodness. Since we've been in touch through emails. Yeah. Yeah. It was a uh, Tuesday night. I was putting out the garbage. No. Yeah. Tuesday night. So he's got to be 60 ish. Uh, yeah. He's 57, 58, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, 58, 59, something like that. And it's funny because after he and I broke up, he ended up in another long-term relationship with this woman. And I kept in touch with his mother because I always felt sorry for her. So I was in touch with her and she was like, oh, you know, Marcus's girlfriend, she goes through a lot with him. And I'm like, you don't say. I thought it was all my fault when we were together because that's what his mother used to say. You stay away from him. Marcus doesn't need your nonsense, whatever. And it's like, oh, well. So he moved out, he like moved, you know, hours and hours away kind of thing, the other side of the, the country. And then he just moved back. Somebody had told me where he lived and I said, where? And so they told me and I was like, oh, that's weird because his ex-girlfriend lived on that same street. So I did a Google to see she lives here. He lives here right across the street. It's like, yeah. And I mean, I've, I've kept in touch with him over the years simply because I feel safer knowing where he is and where his mind is. Like I'm not his friend, buddy, by any means. But like when his mother passed away, he called and told me. And then they had the funeral here because the rest of the family's here. So he had come to town. He'd come with his girlfriend or whatever for the funeral service. I didn't go to the funeral, but I met them for coffee and that kind of thing. Just because I don't like having any discord between us because I don't know where that leads. It's better if I just kind of know as long as I know he's copacetic with me and our, our, the kind of friendship we have, you know, there's always a happy birthday on our birthdays, all, only through Facebook. I think one year he called me, but like, there's no friendship. It's just more of a, I think he likes to know what I'm up to. I like to know where his mind is, especially now. Like when, when I heard he was moving back to town, I thought, oh, well, okay. You know, like we're, we're pretty okay. And I'm not going to worry too much about it. But that scared the shit out of me the other day. It's like, yeah. So I just, like, I don't know. At any point in time in this, did you ever contact a domestic violence agency and just kind of say, you know, try to, you know, what, what can you do for me? What can you tell me? What advice? Did you do that at any I did do that. There weren't a lot of those things back in the day when things were very bad. Um, a lot of them were like, battered spouse type of thing. So they were more interested, not interested, but they were more focused on getting women and children out of bad situations. Whereas I didn't live with him. So, I mean, they gave me some try to stay away from him and, you know, like just things like, yeah. The most, most basic advice you could possibly give. Yeah. And I had enough of, uh, I had enough wherewithal to kind of know those things already. So I'd be like, okay, I'll try that. Whatever. But there wasn't, yeah, there was never, Never anything. No, I don't remember ever. Like I tried to go to counseling one time, some misogynistic counselor. And he's, you know, kind of like, well, so what did you say to tip him off? And I was like, bye. <laughs> what an approach. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do to start the fire? Huh? Yeah. What did you do to tip him off? I think I breathed. Yeah. So my biggest regrets getting back to this whole thing is that I didn't really push a lot of my friends away because we were all in this big group together and they didn't really believe he never really did things in front. Like he would yell at me or whatever, but I'd yell back. Like, you're not going to humiliate me. Thank you very much. 
So he would yell at me, I'd yell back, knowing exactly what was going to happen the next time we were together alone, but I didn't care. I didn't like, don't treat me like an idiot in front of people. No, no, no. So like, I didn't lose friends. Like a lot of times they isolate, they lose friends, whatever. And I wasn't really, I, I can't say that I was isolated because I still spoke to who I wanted to speak to, but I did stay home a lot because I knew he wouldn't like it if I went out. So people would call and they say, hey, you know, there's this, this thing going on and whatever. And if it involved any kind of like partying and socializing, I didn't do it. If it was going to a movie or that kind of thing, I would do those kinds of things, but I would never do anything that was fun and, and social where I could talk to another guy or something like that. I never did any of that kind of stuff. But one thing I did is I let my relationship with my mother completely disintegrate. And that's one thing that I'm very sad about because she died. And I never really got a chance to atone for that. Like she hated him. Like, I can't even tell you. can't even tell you how much she hated him. I just, I just couldn't. I just couldn't leave this person who I just thought I loved with all my heart. You know? And it's so strange because I still care about him. I still care. Like I'm not in love with him, obviously. But I still care about what happens to him. Even when I know he's a manipulator and he lied all the time. And the person that I fell in love with is probably not even a real person. It's probably just whoever he wanted me to think he was, you know, he wasn't mean to me all the time. He didn't say, he didn't say mean things. Like I never got backhanded compliments or that kind of thing. He would say things to me. Like when we go to a bar, that was another lasting thing. I still don't like anybody looking at me. We would go to a bar and he'd say, everybody's looking at you because you're so beautiful. And I'm like, Oh, great. And he'd be mad about it. And I'm like, Oh, that's nice. Everybody thinks I'm beautiful. And that's a terrible thing. Like, you know, it was like, everything had to come with like 12 emotions all at once. It couldn't just be like, Oh, you look nice today. But I would say, well, I'm, I've chosen you. So let's all be happy about that. But even my wedding, I hit, I was walking down the aisle. My uncle actually walked me down the aisle because my parents were gone. I'm walking down the aisle and I said, oh my God, everybody's looking at me. He goes, it's your wedding day. And I'm like, I know, but I don't like it. Like, I don't like this. I don't like people looking at me because when people looked at me, I would get in trouble. So now I'm walking down the aisle and I'm not even with the person that, you know what I mean? But that's still lasting. I'll walk into the gym. I walk into the gym and people look and, the, and I'm like, I immediately look down. I don't make eye contact. And then they'll go, oh, hi, good morning. And I'll be like, oh, hi, how are you? But my initial thing is... And that's like 30 years. When am I going to snap out of it? I'm allowed to talk to people now because I'm, I'm all grown up. So it's just terrible. You know, it's terrible. And that's the thing I think is a, a main reason that I want to contact you because I want people to understand that if you stay in it long enough, you will have lasting effects because it's been 29 years. My husband is nothing like Marcus was. Nothing. Nothing. Like at all. I never have to worry about him. Like he can be kind of moody sometimes and he's a little bit grumpy sometimes, but like I never have to worry about anything like that like you would never say anything mean to me or you know what I mean like things aren't perfect and he's not like that at all but I still have these lasting things and that's one thing that I think is very important is just because you get away from somebody and life is better and you know I hear these people say oh things are great my husband's great things are great and they're only out a couple of years I have to wonder how many of them that were especially in long-term beatdowns how many of them still kind of feel that way with like I don't even think about it you know, like when I think about walking into somewhere and people are looking at me, I don't think about it going in, but I think about it after. And I think they must think I'm a complete, somebody said to me one time, you can be a bit of a snob. Eh? And I'm like me, I talk like literally, I talk to anybody and I, I treat everybody equally. I don't care if you're shining my shoes or you handed me a gold bar, you're all on the same level as me, but that's not what it is. It's, I learned very early on not to look anybody in the eye because you might get a punch in the head for it. Yeah.
Well, an another thing that I just re-remembered that he used to do was he would always try to start fights. And I've heard this from other people too. If there was something coming up like a wedding or a, like some kind of event that he didn't want to go to, all of a sudden he's mad. What are you mad at? And it, like, it took me forever to catch on that this was happening. Like I just knew, cause I mean, it happened other than that too. Like it just happened out of the blue. There'd be a fight and I'd think, why are we fighting? And then it, when, when it was too late to go, then he'd be nice again. It's like, okay, so the wedding starts at nine. Oh, 9.15. Well, he's fine now because now he doesn't have to go for sure, you know, but he didn't want me to go by myself either. Right. It wasn't like, oh, I, I don't want like my husband now. He's like, I don't want to go to that. I'm like, okay, see you later. But Marcus was like, but he would never say, I don't want to go to that. He would always do that so that it's my fault. I'm the one who's making the ultimate because I'd be like, fine, we don't have to go. You know, well, that's my choice now. Oh, we didn't go because Jill didn't want to go. It's just all gaslighting. Everything's all gaslighty all the time, you know. Do you have any advice you want to give us here? I think, you know, just try to find somebody that you can trust and try to find somebody who can kind of understand that you can't just jump out. Like it's not, see, my daughter who's in her early 20s, she'll say, well, why didn't you just leave? Like she doesn't get it. I find it very insulting because she knows me as a person. So first of all, like, how could she even know me and think that I would be in something like that, right? Because if you talk to me, like, this is me, this is who I am. This is who I've always been, except for when I was with him, right? So she's just like, well, why didn't you just leave? But it's not like that. And I think it's important for when you're looking for somebody to help you, if somebody just keeps saying things like that, just say, okay, this, like, don't get mad at them, but they don't understand what you're going through. And they don't understand that it's not that easy. You know, alternatively, you know, some people like to say, well, you know, it might get better, stick around. And like, you just never know what's going to happen. And like, no, if you feel in your gut that something is not right, or you don't want to be feeling that way, then don't worry about what other people say, you know, because I had other people say that. I had a girl say to me one time, oh, Marcus, he's an awesome date. I'm like, for whom? Not an awesome date for me. So that was somebody that I thought I could trust I didn't really tell her anything I was just saying you know things are bad you know whatever and she's like well you got an awesome date so you know like just try to work things out and it's like you have no clue what's going on that's one of the things that I usually end speeches with is saying when someone comes to you and describes and it could be the first time they've told anybody they describe what they're going through and they're bothered by it and they're worried that it's abusive the advice is believe that person your job is not to challenge that person like, ah, no, 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 no. He's not like that at all. You're just, you're just trying to be dramatic. And no, that is, if you're a friend, that is not helpful. You have to no. just be quiet and embrace it and let your friend talk about it and then say, okay, what do you want to do then? Let's maybe get some help. Let's call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, for instance, 800-799-SAFE. Let's do something. You know, if you think that person's a problem, let's be sure. But if you want out of it, let's work together to find somebody who can help you get out. Get in touch with the local domestic violence agency. There are all kinds of things. I know I'm rattling this all off here, but as a friend or as a parent or as a teacher, if someone comes to you, your job is not to help them stay in the relationship if they are hinting around that they want out. If they want out, mm -hmm. then help them get out. And I'm sorry, yeah. it's like tag your it. If that person comes up and tags you and says, hey, look, I got this thing, then your job is to 
you don't have to solve the problem. You have to help direct them to people who can solve the problem. And that's people who deal with it all the time. And I think it's important that you don't discount people's feelings because I've heard different people who've had situations that they're, they say, oh, well, I was abused. And then, you know, what they say to me is like, well, that's not really that bad. Like to me, that's where I go because of what I've been yes, through. Yes, of course. But to me, I'm thinking, well, why are you discounting this person's feelings? This is how they felt. So it was the same thing when he, when Marcus had said to me something about somebody who got put in the hospital. It's the same mentality. I felt like I was being abused, but I wasn't dying in the hospital of internal bleeding, but I'm doing it to somebody else. So it's like you automatically think, oh, well, just because he slapped you, like I've been slapped. Right. So it's important that people kind of see things for what they are because everybody is different. Your tolerance level is different. Yes. You know, if somebody calls me a name, it won't bother me, but it might bother the next person to no end. So it's all in what you're comfortable with. Yes. And, you know, don't think you're being overdramatic. Maybe you're being overdramatic, but if you're not, you might get stuck in something much worse. So if somebody says, well, you're just being overdramatic about it. And it's like, well, you know what? Maybe that's how you feel, but I really feel like it's something bad for me. Well, then. Take that feeling, take that gut feeling, because to me, your gut, and I found this out the other day when Marcus drove by, as soon as I realized who it was, it was like, oh, like it was like a gut punch. Like I just, my stomach literally went, uh oh, get out of here, run. So many people I find nowadays are, they blow things out of proportion and stuff just because of all this TikTok. And, you know, it's like, you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to go into any explanations because then everybody be emailing you about your terrible guest. But there's so many people that, that, that join the bandwagon and the train and, oh, I'm this now and I'm that now and this and that, all that nonsense. But there are some people that really are not blowing it out of proportion. So you really have to, if that's your first thought is that, oh, well, I don't really think it's as bad as you say it is. Don't just discount them. Try to find out a little bit more about what's going on, because maybe that's just scratching the surface. Maybe somebody's throwing something out there to see if they're being overreactive and then say, well, you know, well, what what else happens? Like, is, he, is this something he does often or, you know, just kind of try to get a little bit more information rather than, oh, your boyfriend hit you once and then he felt bad. Well, then you leave or you decide to stay. But if it happens again, then you got to leave kind of thing. Or he yelled at me or he made me feel stupid in front of somebody. Well, you know, maybe that's just his personality. Yes, it's abusive, but maybe that's just who they are. So you kind of have to determine if the person is being overly sensitive or if something is truly going on that they need to get away from before it gets worse. So don't just automatically judge. If you want, if you really, really want to help somebody or if you really are a true friend to somebody, don't judge. Don't judge by one little thing. Feel it out and see what you're going to hear because I've, I've had people who don't talk to me, like, like I said, I'm an open book. And as soon as people hear that, they're like, oh, you can talk to me about anything because whatever, that's just who I am. But people that are not generally like that, they might say something and I'll think, well, you know, it's not so bad. But then as they open up and their story gets bigger, then it's, you know, whether it's abuse or whether it's something else, it's something that they feel is bad, but they're just trying to throw it out there to see if I think it's bad. So don't just say, oh, well, that wasn't that bad, whatever. You know, and I, and I know, cause I've done it myself. I've, I've, well, yeah, I guess I've brushed people off. I've brushed it off as like, oh, you're a bandwagoner. Great. You know, but then when I hear about more, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe not. You know, if you want to be a good friend and you want to help people listen, don't just shoot your mouth off. You have to listen to what's going on and try to understand where they're coming from. So great advice. Oh, Almost every point. I was wondering if you go to the next part and you did oh. the last few moments have really been terrific. 
you're right. Sometimes they're testing the water. They might tell you a little bit about the relationship to see how you handle it. Do you want to listen? Because there's more. They're just kind of easing it out there. And as I said, you may be the first person they spoke with. If you give indications, it's not so bad. That's not so bad. For them, this might be the worst thing that's ever happened in their life. Yeah. Maybe just by your reactions, they're going to decide to either go back to that person because you didn't think it was so bad. I kind of trust Jill's opinion. She'd know better, you know. Mm -hmm. How would you feel if, if that situation got really bad and you thought, oh, my God, she came to me and talked with me. I didn't really embrace her story. Mm-hmm. I tried to figure it out for myself because I have had some experience in this area. You don't want to be that person. No. You, you really need to listen and embrace and allow them to talk and say, look, you want to talk about this again sometime? Call me anytime. Yeah. You know, we both could sit on a call. We can call this National Domestic Violence Hotline if you want to just let's call them. And if you get to the point where you don't want to talk anymore, we'll just flat out hang up. They're not going to call us back. There's all kinds of things a real friend can do. Mm-hmm. rather than just do this kind of judgmental pushback. And now I guess most countries probably have that too, eh? That, that, a hotline like that? I don't know if most countries have it. I'm sure if you're anywhere near the United States, you could call it and they'll take your call. So, and they'll probably, right. they will definitely talk with you and probably direct you to someone more locally in case you want to just go in and sit in someone's office and chat about it a little bit or take a walk with somebody. Right. I'm in touch with a lot of domestic violence agency people. I've only called the hotline myself a couple of times, and I didn't call for the obvious reason. I called just to kind of see how they handled talking with people. I told them who I was, and they said, now, is this an emergency, and you're trying to disguise this? I said, no, 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 no. I swear. I wrote a book on it. I have a podcast. I just wanted to kind of understand your decision tree a little bit, Mm -hmm. how you kind of make your way through these things. So they would talk for a little bit. And I'd leave them alone because they have more important calls. Thank you so much. You've given me so much of your time today. And I can't wait to put this interview up for everybody to hear it. It's really important. I think that people will see in your story how not only easy it is to get involved with the wrong type of person, but also how no matter what was going on, you just kept hanging in there and hanging in there with this with this guy. And people on the outside just don't get it. You know, they it doesn't seem to make sense. You know, yeah. maybe that's why they don't get it. That why would you stay around? And it's like you just somehow feel like you need to. You just feel like you kind of have to. Mm-hmm. And maybe you think back to those early days about how great it was and how you felt about that person. You think that person's still in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So you just, you know, you're kind of loyal and the person on the other side of it is not about loyalty. They're just about keeping you hanging on. Well, there was a lot of crying and, oh, I'm going to kill myself and that kind of stuff. And then when you're a compassionate person, that wasn't me saying that. Yes. At, when you're a compassionate person, you, you like, I don't think I ever believed that he would do that. But I think just the thought of, I don't want to be the cause of that. You know, that was another, another thing too, so. On the long list of warning signs, and it's the one that doesn't get talked about very much, is that person could say, you know, if you broke up with me, I'd kill myself. Mm -hmm. Because they figure that card, that's the ace up their sleeve. They're going to pull that card. And most people don't want to find out that person died, you know, because of of me. Years later, you might have wished it, but, but at the moment... Yeah. yeah, I've actually had people contact me that their their daughter was dating somebody and the guy played that card. And I 
gave my advice. I told him to talk with all the right people, but bottom line is I'm worried about your daughter's life and not so much about the guy. Mm-hmm. And I, that may sound cold, but yeah, I know yeah. I lost my daughter, yeah. you know, to a guy that, that, uh, yeah, I don't know if he ever said that to her. Yeah. The problem with people who say, I, if you break up with me, I'm going to kill myself is sometimes they want to kill a couple people on the way to killing themselves. That's the big yeah. problem with that. Yeah. That's the part to be worried about. Yeah, exactly. Who you're going to take with you. Yeah. Now this is none of my business, but I'm going to ask you anyways, sure. if you don't answer, that's fine. But do you think if you knew what was going on with your daughter, you would have been able to, to, cause you didn't know anything that was going on. No, no, do, no, not a thing. Do you think you would have been prepared or able to kind of do something to prevent it? I'm always curious to know, because if you don't know what's going on, it's hard for you to, because you haven't had time to sit there and mull it over and say, I should do this. I should do that. Just all of a sudden it's done. And your obvious thing is I want to take a gun. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but do you think if you had a known ahead of time, you would have been able to kind of pull resources together to help her figure it out? You know, somewhere along the line in the book, I probably come out and say, I didn't, I didn't know really anything about dating violence or domestic violence beyond cliches, stereotypes, doesn't happen in our kind of neighborhood kind of thing. Yeah. We didn't really know anything. Let's just say, Mm -hmm. you know, there would have been a lot of catching up. I probably, if I knew a little bit more at that time, she was outside of Philadelphia and we live near Baltimore, which is about 125 miles away. So if I knew more, I would have gotten my keys. I would have gone to see her, see her now, not him. She didn't really let on very much. I don't know if you've gotten to that point in the book where you actually see emails we traded back and Mm -hmm. forth the night that she was killed. Yeah. So I didn't know very much about really what was going on. She just says, you know, we had we had a fight today. You know, he was really being annoying and I couldn't spend time with my friends and things like that. So that doesn't sound like somebody's on the verge of getting killed. Oh, yeah. It doesn't even sound like it's anything that awful. You think, boy, it'd be nice when you're not dating this guy, you know, so, eh, you know, just sounds like low grade stomach virus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the steps I would have taken without knowing much would be at least to get with her and talk with her. How much she would open up about him, I don't know. My wife and I have talked about that too. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it would have gone. One of the things that so many fathers who've lost their daughters, if they had known something was going to go down, just about every one of them talk, talks about basically interceding, you know, throwing yourself in there against the guy and all that. I don't know of too many instances where that has happened, but I just about guarantee you that it didn't go very well. Yeah. You know, that somebody gets killed and sometimes it's not the, 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 the guy dating your daughter, hmm. you know, it could be yourself. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I would have been going up, I would have, at 54 years old then, I would have been going up against some guy who was in and out of the gym all the time hmm. and, um, and he was 28. So if it was physical, I would have been in tough shape. Yeah. You know, yeah. unless I got lucky. I guess one of the things I maybe if I if I kick myself at all, it's just that I why didn't I just give her a call? Yeah. But yeah. it didn't sound that bad though. Yeah. I'm I'm just asking because I, I just really hope you don't kick yourself or anything. I really haven't been. You know, some people have asked me about the speeches in the book and the podcast and all that stuff. You know, maybe in there somewhere I'm thinking that I can't save her, but I can maybe save somebody else's kid, male yeah. or female. So that's pretty big. You know, it's yeah. um, I'm I'm very fortunate. Once I got through 
doing a lot of the speeches and then the different variations of the book, including the audio book, which actually gave me the courage to do the podcast. And the reception of this has given me the energy to keep doing it. I'm doing more on this podcast, doing more episodes and things like that. I'm doing more things now than I ever did. I'm so glad I found this podcast because there's so many different stories. Somebody is yes. going to relate to something. Little pieces, like I said, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. I, like, yeah. like I got to call my sister-in-law and say, hey, you got to check this out because this is your life. Yeah. Like a mellow version because hers was much worse. My brother is terrible. So Jill, thank you so much for coming on the When Dating Hurts podcast today and telling your story. And I think that interlaced in your story is just so much great advice for people. I just hope when people hear these types of episodes that they see the parts that ring true to either someone they knew or maybe in their own lives, or there are people that, who are out there right now who are currently going through something. And I just hope, I mean, I, I literally pray they may hear something and say, oh my God, that sounds like my relationship with this guy, or that sounds like my sister's relationship or my friend's or my niece's relationship or with that in mind, you know, that's when this podcast is doing some good. I want to thank you so much for telling your story because a lot of stories have a lot of similarities. And what I want people to know is that if you are today's victim, you could be tomorrow's survivor. You know, you have to reach the point where you bottom out and then you have to get help and then you have to get out. And that's really, unfortunately, on you. You got into it and it's going to be mostly you getting you out of it. But Jill, this was great today. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I, I know so many people are going to listen to all the episodes and they're going to hear so many things that have probably happened to them that they didn't even realize was bad or toxic or they just kind of blew it off. And that's why that's what I love about your podcast is you have so many stories, so many different people, so many different perspectives on things that are happening and going on. Like, I think everybody should honestly, I think everybody should listen to your podcast and and understand what's going on out there because it's very important that people get away and people understand what's happening to them and, and realize that there's life after abuse for sure for sure so thank you very much for listening i'm happy to hear your story today and and i'll be even happier to get it published so people can hear it so thank, thank you so much great okay thank you okay thank you for following the when dating hurts podcast the interest we are seeing far exceeds all expectations we had as an example just two years ago, this podcast had less than 2,000 downloads. Today, we are above 400,000 downloads. You can see why we're excited. The more who listen, the more who better understand domestic violence. We see now that When Dating Hurts has become the platform where dating and domestic abuse survivors can tell their entire stories from those early days when they thought it was love through the horrific nightmarish times of emotional manipulation power and control tactics, and sometimes devastating physical violence. It sneaks up on people. That's how domestic violence traps I want to give extra emphatic thanks to the survivors who have come to us and told us in great detail their personal stories of abuse. These generous survivors have afforded us open access into the worst times they have ever endured. Their lives were made miserable by domineering abusers people who were relentless in the calculated evil they perpetrated specifically to devise invisible prisons around those they told they loved. These stories, although challenging to listen to, are made bearable 
because we know that each of the survivors will eventually transition from a victim to a survivor. We see the sheer determination and immense courage it sometimes takes for a person to regain freedom. It's important to know that victims can always get help, victims can always get out, and victims can become survivors. Okay, just a quick reminder, the When Dating Hurts book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook and audiobook forms. If you're a survivor and you have a story we need to hear, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Thank you for listening.